2: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are
0: waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. The World Chess Championship 2023 is almost here, and we've got a jam-packed double-episode preview for you. First up, we will have Grandmaster Daniel King. I'm a huge fan of his Power Play Chess YouTube channel. He's been on the show before. He's a guy who's broadcast top chess events for decades, attended many world championships, knows tons of chess history, so I always like getting his perspective. So he joins me to provide a sort of um, anecdotal, big-picture perspective on the match between Ding Loren and Jan Nepomnići. First up. Then with Daniel, we also discuss the Sicilian defense. He's out with a new course on chessable uh, discussing anti-Sicilians. Uh, we we discuss some of the prior world championships he's intended, and then we do some chess improvement talk. So we've got a lot for you in this episode. So just a reminder, there's always timestamps if you're more interested in one particular aspect of the show. Second up on the pod, we have USCF National Master and Statistician Matt Jensen. Matt uh, always does great great analytics previews for chess.com for big chess events. So I thought it would be fun to bring him in and get an analytics-based preview for the Ding and Nepo match. Um, We also talk about chess ratings because Matt, for his chess educational site, chessgoals.com, has kept track of different chess ratings across different sites, helped people adjust so that like If you ask someone their rating and they give you their lead chess rating and you're trying to figure out how does it work, how does it compare to chess.com, they help translate across the rating spectrum. So Matt had some good insights on how ratings are changing and things you should know about them. We also talk about chess improvement with Matt. So fun double episode discussing this upcoming match. Um, Before we go any further, I wanted to thank our presenting chess education sponsor, chessable.com. Also wanted to let you guys know that we have a new feature where you i'm linking to my favorite chessable courses so the website will list be a running list of my favorite chessable courses um so that if you're interested in finding out which ones i think would be the most useful you can go to that in the show description and check it out i'm a big fan of daniel's new course actually um some of my other personal favorites i always recommend everyone's first chess workbook for newer players Um, I like Jonathan Rousson's works for medium players. And then, of course, depending on your opening uh, bent, there's tons of good opening courses. Christoph Salecki is always great. I love uh, Andres Toth's general chess education content, especially for the intermediate player. So shout out to Chessable, as always. And last but not least, before we get you to your guests to our guests, I wanted to uh, tell you a little bit about the match, just in case you are not totally up on sort of the general details. So number one, it's taking place in Astana, Kazakhstan this year from April 7th, to may 1st it's a 14 game match obviously the players take turns between having the white and the black pieces the time control is 120 minutes for the first 40 moves then they get 60 minutes for the next 20 moves and 15 minutes for the rest of the game with a 30 second increment at the end that's a long way of saying they don't call it classical chess for nothing it's long games some people like that some people don't we'll talk about that with daniel king But that is the history of chess. This is actually faster than it used to be. And uh, I I think it'll be interesting. I mean, um, as we talk about with Daniel and Matt, obviously, um, without Magnus being in the match and with the geopolitical backdrop, it's uh, a different kind of match. But from a chess perspective, it is quite interesting. A bit more about the competitors. Ding Loren, uh, I guess you would consider the challenger since he came in second in the candidates. Uh, he would not be in this match if Magnus did not um, abdicate his throne, so to speak. Uh, so Ding is 30 years of age, uh, number three on the live ratings, 2788 rating as we record this on March 21st. He was a bit lucky to even be in this situation. First of all, he wasn't going to be in the candidates, but Sergey Karyakin had been outspoken in support of the Russia-Ukraine war, and he was no longer allowed to participate, rightfully, due to his comments. So Ding Loren was a last-minute replacement, and then he was not having a great candidates tournament, um, but he finished strong in the second half. Some may remember he had a critical game against Hikaru Nakamura in the last round, that if it were Hikaru who had won held the draw excuse me uh Hakaru would have come in second and likely would be in this match but uh Ding brought home the win finished in second place so now here he is playing Jan Nepomnići uh listeners you're probably more familiar with Nepomnići although of course you know both players but Nepo having been in the last world championship match uh historically playing for Russia he's 32 years of age a dynamic player um, he's less predictable on openings than ding traditionally. Um, you know, in the past he's played like the Grunfeld and, uh, the Nidorf and lots of, uh, fun attacking openings, but he kept it solid against Magnus. So we will see which one, uh, will, um, be revealed in the world championship. It's always fun to try to guess what openings are going to come, um, and last but not least, the prize fund. The prize is 2 million euros, split 60% for the winner, and 40% of the 2 million goes to the loser so of course we'll be revealing more details within the conversations but just wanted to give you guys the basic facts about the upcoming world championship and if you're more interested in the other topics check the timestamps and check them out so thanks for listening slash watching and without further ado let's get you to the first interview with Daniel King followed by Matt Jensen talking chess data and more here we go And we are here with a guest who is always a favorite of mine. He is a popular broadcaster, author, chessable author, most recently of King's Anti-Sicilians for Black. He was just telling me he's been up late in the night finishing up the recording in German for it, in addition to uh, English video. So German listeners, you've got choices. He's also a popular YouTube presenter of the always excellent Power Play Chess YouTube channel. Excellent game recaps there. Um, And... And he always seems to come around the show when there's big chess events happening. So it wasn't by design this time, but Daniel and I have been in touch for a while. And as we were getting ready to court, I was thinking, oh, it's time to talk about the world championship. So in addition to discussing what else is new with him, the general chess landscape and his chessable course, we will be previewing the world championship. But without further ado, let's welcome Grandmaster Daniel King back
1: to the show. Welcome back, Daniel. Thank you very much. Very very nice to be here. And uh, yeah, nice to see you, Ben. How are you? You okay? Busy? Everything's Yeah,
0: everything's good. I'm well. I think both you and I have, at least from a comment you made in the email, maybe we're not quite as excited for this world championship match <laughs> as prior ones. But as I was saying to you, uh, in the process of preparing for this interview, I started to get more excited. And I, I think a lot of people may sort of end up with that mindset where... It doesn't have the build-up that seeing Magnus in action, that seeing the legacy of a many-year champion defend his throne would. But at the same time, it's a compelling matchup. What What are your first thoughts about the match,
1: Daniel? Well, it's the number two and three players in the world for a start. So that's a pretty good reason why we should be watching this match, actually. Um, if Magnus is really turning away from classical chess which uh well his actions seem to be (laughs) (laughs) showing that um then these two could be the you know the well they are the number two three in the world so you know they're they're the best classical players in the world at the moment well but that's the same for any world champion so i'm really hoping that within the first few games we get a nice decisive game and then we will have a very interesting match on our hands um because i think you know both players have a real spark about them actually and if hopefully that spark can ignite in the first few games then you know we could have something very interesting on our hands
0: yeah it's i hadn't even realized because the other than number one the top 10 shifts around so much that I also hadn't realized it was the live number two and the live number three until Mm. I was looking at 2700chess.com yesterday. And that definitely adds to the intrigue. Another thing is the stylistic differences. Um, I feel like from a, again, from an on the board perspective, um, it's a real clash of styles. And we were saying that about Nepo against Magnus as well, but this time obviously they're less than 10 reading points apart. So it's um a clash of styles, but an
1: even match as well. Well, you said clash of styles. I'm I'm intrigued by that actually, because I, you know, I've got my my view on what their styles are. Tell me what you think their styles are.
0: Okay. Well, it's changed a little bit because Nepo, of course, unveiled his more solid repertoire against Magnus. But historically, with him being like a Grunfeld and a Nidorf player and a fierce tactician, and of course being known for being a bit impatient at times, I mm. think of uh, um, Nepo as a bit of like a swashbuckler. And Ding, of course, tactically gifted as well as all 2,700 plus players are. But I think of him more as like a classical player, you know, versatile classical player. So not necessarily um, only positional, but certainly historically, I think of him as a bit um, more well rounded than Nepo. How does that
1: land? That that sounds that sounds pretty good. Okay. No, <laughs> so, I mean I was gonna say that I think I think both players have rather changed in recent years, actually. Because I, I see Ding playing sometimes very, very technically, you know, sort of grinding out positions from you know his Catalan, for example. Um, but you know, I can think of him in the past winning absolutely glorious tactical battles and having such a sharp instinct for attack. So, you know, I, I, I think I first saw him in Beale in 2013, where in fact, both Nepo and Ding were playing in, in that year. Uh, and I was commentating uh, at, in Beale. So, you know, I got to know them a little bit. And at that time, Ding played, Know that had the most extraordinary sort of tactical melees on the board. Uh, you know, he was playing the King's Indian a lot. I mean, I know you know things have changed a bit, and you know, clearly he's become more technical, but boy, does he have a sharp instinct for attack. And as you say, he you know, his calculation is superb, so it could be very interesting. And as you say, Nepo can be. Uh, a little bit impetuous sometimes, which makes things interesting. You know, I'm uh, looking at some of his games over the last couple of years. I, Admittedly, only kind of rapid and blitz. He likes to play the King's Gambit. Right. He
0: but, wrote a chess book course about it. Yeah. He
1: did, yeah. Uh, but, you know, he practices what he preaches. Um, now, we don't see him in classical games, but I think it gives an idea of, as you say, how swashbuckling he is and how he sometimes is sometimes is prepared to actually risk a great deal and does it very naturally. So, you know, that could be really interesting.
0: Yeah, it it will be. And it'll be interesting to see what happens with the openings. Um, Ding, of course, never has, I mean, hardly ever plays E4. Um, Nepo, very hard to predict with the white pieces, with the black pieces. He's historically been a bit more predictable, but again, he switched from sort of his historical aggressive repertoire to something strictly more classical do you have any sense any predictions about which direction nepo would take it in this upcoming match
1: (laughs) well hmm. (laughs) (laughs) let let, let me let me get my crystal ball out and have a look (laughs) um i i think you know in this kind of situation i i think he's going to go solid you know um I mean, what I was going to say about, I mean, we haven't talked about who we think the favourite is, but I, I mean, I think Nepo's the favourite, basically. Okay, yeah. And I think, and and one of the reasons for that is because I think he's learned from his match against Magnus. You know, I don't think anything can prepare you for a world championship match. You know, you, you think back to Kasparov and Karpov's first match, where, you know, Gary was blown out of the water, really. Okay, he, you know... Under normal circumstances, you know, he was 5-0 down. He should have lost that match. Right. But okay, well, we know what happened is a big history, but he has you know was both both said afterwards, you know, he he had 48 lessons from Karpov. And after that first match, Kasparov learned so much about what you know match play is. Um, and I think. Nepo will have learned so much from his match against Magnus uh, because you know Magnus, of course, incredibly experienced in match play now as well. Um, So you know, I think you know Nepo was completely outplayed, but yeah, he's he's learned a lot from that match. Basically, I'm sure he'll put it into practice. So you know, it's about playing solidly and seizing your moment, basically.
0: Yeah, I mean of course he was completely outplayed but only after he lost his first game <laughs> the, the, the first five games yeah he, go ahead sorry
1: no, so, uh, sorry to interrupt go, uh, no I uh, yeah and then it, it was like you know skittles <laughs> yeah but but actually I think that shows you that um there was a certain brittleness there obviously right but he would have learned from that too you know that okay you 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 have I mean that Game six was absolutely extraordinary, uh, but it was one game. It yeah. was only one game.
0: Well, I was mentioning to you before we were recording, friend of the pod, Jakob Agard, often helps out US chess with world championship uh, coverage, and he he mentioned on Twitter he's less excited about this match than some others, Um But as Jakob talked about leading up to the last world championship match, Nepo did have a history of getting out to fast starts or solid starts in that case, and then sort of um, slowing down now, of course. So that happened to the extreme in the world championship and the candidates he managed to, um, to maintain his lead. But anyway, what I agree with you, Daniel, I consider Nepo the favorite, but I do think there's a lingering question of if he does lose a game early Will he be able to rebound? Because that is the one skill he hasn't showcased as much as uh, his many other skills.
1: Yeah, very true. Has he got a glass jaw, basically? Yeah, right? no. uh, <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. But as I said, I, you know, I see. Also, you know, just looking at the the classical tournaments that they've played over the last couple of years, in fact, we don't have that much to go on, particularly with Ding. I mean, I find this quite intriguing. So, okay, so their last tournaments, Nepo played in in the tournament in in Germany and played very solidly, came equal first. Then we had Ding, who played in the Tata Steel tournament, did poorly, five and a half out of 13. But before then, what, what, what were their last classical tournaments? So Ding's played... Unless my my mega base is <laughs> um, <laughs> deceiving me, Ding has played a few league games in China, classical games. I mean, obviously, there's lots of blitz and rapid stuff, um, but you know, I'm talking classical games. And basically, you know, we go then we go to St Louis, where Nepo. Okay, is this strange St Louis tournament in the Sinkfield Cup in September? Um, where Nepo tied for first, but I, I realised he lost to Magnus, but he tied for first with five. And then before then, it was the candidates' tournament um, where, where Nepo came out on top. And with Ding, okay, so we have that candidates' tournament and the Tata Steel, but basically no other tournaments. So I, I find Nepo has been more consistent in the in the few classical games that that they've played and again that for me that's another reason why he's he should be the favourites here and, and another thing about ding is I look at their physique now okay Nepo is not is not in the in the Magnus mold mm-hmm. nevertheless you feel that you know he he can go 14 rounds whereas with Ding Ding looks like a stick of celery Yeah, you know, I think it's going to be a real shock for Ding, unless you know he comes out and he he's basically um, (laughs) been bodybuilding for the last few months. Then I think he's actually going to struggle.
0: Yeah, I feel like there are. A lot more questions surrounding Ding, despite the one the one question that I just raised about Nepo. I mean, he has gained so much experience, and I recently interviewed Grandmaster Christian Carilla, and as we as we discussed, I mean, Nepo, it, it's a reasonable assumption that he'll have a solid team behind him, mm-hmm. um, and with Ding, we just don't know. He may, yeah. but we don't know.
1: I think it's another really good point, actually. You know, with the 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 russian team i mean they have so much accumulated experience over well really over decades whereas the chinese it's a yeah as you say we we it's very much an unknown and chinese players don't have experience of these long matches you know i think this is a very different kind of chess so it's going to be fascinating you know ding might come up with a very different way of playing you know i would love it if we had a match where uh, for example ding had learned a stack of new openings and kind of switched between every few games yeah um, you know there are there are different ways of playing matches you know if we go back to you know reykjavik 72 where bobby decided to switch between different openings you know they played Sicilian. The Pierce, the Alekins. Yeah. Um, you know, all
0: sprung the English. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And obviously, with White sprung the English. Yeah. And that seems to have gone out of fashion, actually. Um, however, you know, I think that could be a very interesting tactic because, you know, suddenly all the seconds panic when a new opening comes on the board. It was interesting. You know, I was listening to um, your interview with John Spielman when he was talking about New York 95. And he mentioned exactly that and that they. They push the open Spanish. Right. Just one more time and they got it wrong. They got it badly wrong. Misjudged it.
0: Yeah, and I do. That's that's one of the great intrigues. That is what one of the great legacies of these uh, Classical World Championships. So, of course, it's come up on the pod. You know, we don't know how many more of these we'll have in this format. Um, but just... Thinking about sort of the dynamics of the opening play and uh, how the how different how each competitor would react to a setback, it it, it does get me excited. Now, Daniel, I do want to address one one big topic that I feel shouldn't be ignored with this match. Uh, again, raised by Grandmaster Agard in our brief exchange yesterday, but obviously he's not the first. Um, you know, obviously Nepo is Russian. He has, um, he's been a little unclear about where he stands on the U- Ukrainian, or I should say the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, but of course, historically, he's been quite close to to the Russian government. Um, do you have an opinion on if he should even be allowed to play? Obviously, someone like Peter Hein Nielsen um, would say he shouldn't.
1: Well, I, I mean, I think he's going to be playing under the, the FIDE flag. But, right, but
0: is that enough?
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, it's a good question. Um, I I mean, there's no doubt if he wins, then, uh, you know, a, a great deal will be made of it in Moscow. Right. But I thought he signed, wasn't he one of the signatories of, of the, this letter last year, actually uh, denouncing the war? Denouncing is maybe strong, too right. strong, but, but criticizing the war. Yeah, I believe he was. Um, So, you know, as an individual in a state like that, it must be incredibly difficult for him. There's an argument to, you know, boycott the match completely. Um, You know, Kazakhstan and Russia have very, very close relations. And, well... (laughs) We know who's in charge of Fide. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, of course, it concerns me because I'm sure that uh, the Russians will make everything of um, if Nepo is is successful. So, yeah, it's very worrying. Yeah. I have to say. But, you know, I think we shouldn't brush it under the carpet. And but I just think politics is a part of sport generally, you know, everywhere. You know, let's let's look at the, the last uh, Football World Cup in Qatar. Well, and the one before that in Russia. Right. Where Dvorkovich was basically the, the chair of the organising committee. You know, you can't separate sport and politics. Um, and that's really tricky. And there's an argument for boycotting completely. I mean, I'm not sure exactly where I stand on this to be honest it's it's very hard you know we fide well, we have darkovich as fide president um but we all sort of live in this chess world, which is um yeah run by fide so but what do so what do we do? I don't know do I do I start playing checkers or I don't right. <laughs> I, seriously? I mean, I think it's really tricky. Yeah. There are good people within FIDE. Um, but unfortunately, you know, I, I wish uh, the, the present incumbents weren't running FIDE. You know, it's obviously decisions are, are, are compromised here.
0: Yeah. It's I'm not
1: sure. You know, I'm going to be covering the match on my, on my uh, YouTube channel. Um, I don't know if I, you know, if I just close one eye Ray. and pretend the match that isn't, isn't going on, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I mean,
0: I've, I've struggled with the same thing in the build up for the podcast. I mean, uh, historically I'm doing bonus podcasts, talking to people at the, at the venue and, uh, yeah, I sort of reluctantly decided to do the same thing because, uh, as you say, at, at the end of the day, it's two people playing chess, and and that's what we love. But I'm very sympathetic to uh, people who decide to ignore it entirely. Yeah, um, and and yeah, but as you say, Nepo also he's 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 in a difficult situation, and it it's a tough philosophical question whether a Russian player who uh, we have reason to believe may be opposed to the war, um, whether they should be. Uh, outlawed from international chess, whether they're representing Russia or not. Um, mm. I, I think reasonable people can have opinions on both sides, probably not the hot take people are looking for.
1: no, probably not. um yeah, i'm I'm fence sitting as well, but it but you know, I sense that there are so many people um, doing exactly the same and you know, having their cake and eating it as well um it's really tough i don't know yeah I you know we, we haven't even spoken about chinese politics yet right that's true by, by the yeah. way yeah um and I, I don't even want to talk about my government either right yeah i mean
0: yeah no government is perfect so that's that's for sure um yeah.
1: so listen i I'm, I'm not sure you know i'm going to be following the match yeah uh, I, but i think I think we have to have understanding for individuals who are put in an almost impossible situation, because whatever they do, I think um they could be compromised.
0: Yeah, one way or the other.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, okay, well, let's bring it back to the chess. We have a question from uh, Alex Marler, uh, Patreon supporter of the pod. Thanks for supporting the pod, Alex. And he asks, he says, what are your thoughts on eliminating opening preparation from world championship match by doing random selection of opening right when the players sit down to play, there are many ways to randomly make the selection without choosing a position that is unequal. Um, so this is something that's been discussed of course, in correspondence, uh, quite frequently, but it's, it's a big leap in classical. What do you think, Daniel?
1: Yeah, I I find that one a bit too artificial actually. Um, because i think for me the opening choice in these matches is actually really interesting and how players use openings um and I, you know i mentioned you know this idea of of somebody preparing extremely well and switching between openings you know this is i think this is a very interesting tactic and frankly i'm surprised it hasn't been used more in recent matches i know it's risky but actually, you know, I think it could be very interesting to spring that one. So I I don't like that idea. As far as other ideas for sort of introducing more jeopardy. Um, I mean, maybe slightly faster time controls. Yeah. I mean, at least we've got away from the increment. At least I assume we have. I haven't checked the time control, actually. That's.
0: I have the time control here.
1: Uh, I guess it's forty and two and twenty and one.
0: um, Yep, good. Doing away Um, increment beginning at move sixty one.
1: Yeah, that seems that seems reasonable. Yeah, Uh, and I think that makes a big difference actually.
0: Yeah, that was a that was a big. So I I really enjoyed that aspect of the Nepo Carlson match. Obviously, harking back to game six. I mean the the idea of them just having you know, minutes to make, you know, more than 10 moves was mm. uh, really heightened the tension. Well, that's uh, proper
1: old chess. Old exactly, sport. yeah. 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 But to me, that seems just like normal. You know, that's that's what I grew up on. That's what I, you know, when I, when I was a professional player, that was just absolutely standard. I didn't play with an increment. So, you know, those scenes where you, yeah, as you say, you have someone squeezing the maximum from a position and and thinking can i take that piece can i get away with it and then having to make 10 moves in a minute that's normal the great thing is nowadays you know we have digital clocks so you can see exactly how many seconds you have so people can really go down to the wire so i mean maybe i don't know i i I know so everyone wants to change it every world championship match we have these this cry oh no, this is really boring <laughs> and you know you can just imagine uh, spectators who've sort of grown up watching bullet brawls <laughs> <laughs> you know looking at looking at one game for hours just completely perplexed you know this is a complete clash of cultures i would like to stick with Classical chess as we are, and particularly for the world championship match. But I realize, you know, I'm I'm basically an analogue dinosaur in in a digital age. So let's see. You know, I, I still feel that there is real scope to have an incredibly exciting match. I enjoyed the last world championship match. I thought that was really intriguing. The fact that Nepo collapsed at a certain point. Well, it was incredibly tense. And I th- I thought it was a good match there you go it, yeah. it all happened very quickly <laughs> strangely
0: <laughs> yeah I I I agree with what Fabiano has said recently I mean it really comes down to the players if if they do it I'll watch I get invested yeah. in the history um there there are aspects of it I love but uh you know rules do change in sports over time so um if you know as you say speeding things up continu- continuing to speed things up at the margin to me is uh, it's uh relatively um, pain free although Le- Aronian was recently on uh, the c squared podcast and he just he made the point that he was saying fabiano i know you don't agree with me but i still love classical chess and he said he has this romantic idea when you sit down to play a game of classical chess that you can play a perfect game um right. And that it's, it's harder to do that, obviously, um, in the faster the time control.
1: Yeah. I mean, just thinking just in, in the big picture, but, uh, you know, what will happen? Because obviously, you know, we're saying, look, Magnus, he's the number one in the world. Yeah, no, no dispute. So what will happen? So we'll get either Ding or Nepo will be crowned world champion. And then we will have this kind of interregnum where we wait for magnus to return and challenge or you know maybe there'll be another one or two world championship matches where again we have we crown a world champion who isn't the best in the world but at some point either magnus will decide okay i really don't want to play another world championship match again or he'll return and you know, and then things will resolve again. You know, we've kind of been through this before in, in you know, the late 90s and early 2000s, where, you know, I would describe that as an interregnum as well. So right. We had FIDE World Championships. We had um, Kasparov playing, obviously, in 95, and then the match in 2000. Um, but you know, for five years it wasn't clear whether there was going to be a world championship with Kasparov. And so we had these Fide World Champions who were obviously very strong, but well, they were they were Avignon Popes basically. Um <laughs> if that, if that <laughs> means something, you know, it was an interregnum. Yeah, we were waiting for the for the big one. And, you know, I think that's probably what's going to happen again. At some point, Magnus will decide, okay, I want to have another crack at it.
0: Yeah, I mean, or, you know, he's, he's already said he'd retire from classical chess by the age of 40. Um, Right. So there's a there's a finite amount of time where he he will likely, first of all, he might not even be playing, but also like, you know right now no one is near catching him but sooner or later one of these young bucks is going to uh make a leap and um so it could be that he's not the number 1 at some point and uh and it resolves of its own accord um of course to me the the dream storyline is like some young ascender and magnus play but we're multiple steps away from that i don't think he's going to i don't think he's going to come back out to play the winner of this match um personally no.
1: No, probably not. But um, I just wonder how far off we are from, you know, one of the kids coming through and challenging. I, I'm not sure we're that far off. Five
0: anyone years. in per- anyone in particular? You would. Uh, well, would I don't
1: know. know. You know, depends what day of the week it is and whether it's Prague <laughs> right, exactly. or Gukesh or you know Eredivisie or, and that's really exciting. So you know, I think it could be five years could be yeah. five years and and then you know we'll be on the cusp of you know magnus deciding okay this is my last shot because he'll be getting to the cutoff when it where he's 40 and one of the kids will be getting that good mm. so yeah well, i think i think we're going to have this time time of an interregnum basically
0: It'll be interesting. I'm, I, you know, I'm not so sure. I'm, I'm worried just about the continued phasing out if Magnus doesn't come back. Um, but we'll see. It'll be, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out either way. Certainly, if you think about how much chess has changed in the five years preceding today, mm. in 2023, it's, it's the, there's a world of possibilities five years from now. Um,
1: De- definitely. Yeah. It's really, really hard to predict what's going on I'll tell you yeah I just I've got to tell you about being a being an analog dinosaur (laughs) Um, I was I'm a I'm a I'm a football fan and you know I go to you know my local club here uh regularly and there are some teenage kids in the same row you know we always sit in the same places and you know one of them's on his phone at half time and he's playing on chess.com. Oh fun. And and like one of the guys next to me kind of, you know, gives him right, a right. nudge and says, You know that guy there? He's a chess grandmaster. You know, that that's how I'm known. <laughs> you know, right, of course. I'm the I'm the chess grandmaster that turns up to football matches. And the this like 15-year-old kind of looks up from his phone <laughs> and goes, What's a (laughs) grandmaster? So that's how far we've come. You know, he's he's playing against some bot on chess.com. And this is just a different world that we now live in. Totally different. And that's how I know I'm a dinosaur.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, speaking of you being dinosaur, one of the reasons I was glad to have you on the pod (laughs) is what you mentioned, living through the 1990s, the disputed world championship period. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, as you mentioned, this one, there might be, um, you know, some people might feel like an air of illegitimacy or just the fact that we know it's not the best player who will be the champion. Mm -hmm. There's no dispute, though, about like rivaling factions of world championships. But does mm. your feeling of this, this match, how does it compare to those days when Kasparov had his separate faction, as you say, playing Anand in 95 and then Kramnik in, in 2000, not to mention the confusion preceding 1995? How mm. does that period compare to you, Daniel? Um,
1: well, at least with Kasparov, you know, we basically knew he was the strongest player in the world. Until it got to 2000, when, you know, players like Anand, I mean, obviously Kramnik uh, beat him in 2000, but but players like Anand were already saying, well, you know, this was privately. Right. Anand was saying, you know, we've got his number now. We're oh, interesting. Good, we're as, basically, we're as good as him. You know, this, this was going on behind the scenes.
0: Did Did he tell you that?
1: Um. Oh dear! <laughs> that's you just that's this just kind listening. of my that's kind of my memory. Okay, I might have got that wrong, but I remember in the late nineties being at um, there was a, um, a rapid play event in Germany, which Vichy won, and Kasparov didn't win, and he was very upset. But you know. Vichy, I seem to remember Vichy saying then, oh, yeah, well, you know, I think we've got his number. I mean, obviously that was rapid play, but it was clear that they, you know, that generation of Anand and Kramnik weren't in awe of Kasparov anymore, Yeah, which they had been before. So, listen, I can't give you a direct quote, but I do remember, and I think it was in 1998 or 99 in, in Germany, in Frankfurt. Um, so, you know, that was different then. But, yeah, I mean, but Kasparov was, you know, still the man to beat. So this is going to be a little bit different. But there are other sports where... You know, there are new world champions every however many years or sometimes even annually where, OK, he's the world champion this year. OK, then we move on. It somehow isn't the big deal. I think the problem is with the chess world that world champions have always been like, you know, Roman emperors. They they seem to be all powerful and all knowing. But actually, you know, maybe that's just false. I mean, I think they are with, with Magnus. You know, he's he's steam, he's clearly number one, but there are going to be other times where, you know, a world champion is just primus inter pares, basically. Um, you know, I think. it Maybe it's unusual that there's one chess player that is so much stronger than the rest. I think it's very unusual, actually.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, and I'm sure that contributed to Magnus's stepping down. Um,
1: yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and 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 I have, I mean, I know this is kind of old ground, but you know, I have a lot of sympathy with with Magnus Magnus's position because world championship match should not be every two years. It just, it would eat into your soul. Yeah. <laughs> preparing for these matches you know your every waking thought practically you know be hanging over your head two years is too often you know if you want to make it really special well it used to be every three years have it every three years and then it's not so much of a you know doesn't eat into your life basically quite as much yeah i I have a lot of sympathy with magnus in that respect
0: i do as well Mm. um and daniel on the topic of sympathy with Magnus, I know that the Hans Neiman magnus story is kind of old news, mm. but I think you and I kind of shared some viewpoints. You you had done a few YouTube videos about it. Um, as you look back on the whole scandal, which of course is just simmering now, I don't feel like it's gone, but uh, mm. Hans neiman has been pretty quiet. I mean, there's addendums in the lawsuit here and there. Um, he is playing in uh, Sharjah Masters coming up. I'm excited to actually set aside all the nonsense and see what he does over the board. But do, do you have like, how do you reflect on that? All the crazy stuff that's happened in the past year regarding that scandal?
1: Yeah, it's funny, it's kind of it does feel like really old news, but it, it it's, once again, it's the chess world that that events in the chess world are actually almost taking the lead of what's happening in society. Mm-hmm. you know we see that so often whether it's you know politics economics uh you know the 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 rise of china and india in in world chess and you know that's economically obviously they're, they're turning into absolute superpowers um but with this story okay let, let me i've got to tell you about this this is crazy so <laughs> um Every couple of months, we have a window cleaner that comes around to the house. Nice guy. Uh, you know, we always share a cup of tea and have a chat. And, you know, again, he knows me as the chess player. Right. And and so, you know, the, the last time he came around, he goes, ah, what's happening with all this, this <laughs> cheating? You know, what? give me the inside story. What's going on here? How is it possible to cheat? And, of course, he'd heard, you know, all these outlandish stories (laughs) um so i said well you know you really need an accomplice and you know sort of little tiny earpiece and you know they can get the moves online you know in live and then you know try and transmit something back to the player who's just listening and you know they can follow moves of computer you know that's that's sort of how you did it and he went ah i got it yeah yeah i did the same in the university exam
0: hmm.
1: uh, okay so, so first of all i'm going uh, hang on this is the window cleaner. this is the guy that cleans the cleans the windows <laughs> on the house so first one going hang on he's got a he's got a degree so why is he cleaning windows these kind of things flash through through my mind <laughs> um and i'm thinking hang on <laughs> he's He's kind of openly admitting to cheating. So I said, okay, tell me about this one. <laughs> this is this is getting, getting a bit strange. He said, Yeah, you know, there was a particular paper um, that I failed like three times. He's, I mean, I don't know exactly what he was studying, but he said, Yeah, this was something to do with aviation and I aviation physics. And I just couldn't get it. Oh, it's an absolute pain. So he said, What I did was I got my brother. And he said, I did exactly this. He said, I had an earpiece. My brother was outside in the car park (laughs) with a textbook. And um, so I said, you know, how did you communicate in exam? He said, well, it's okay. I I had two phones. I handed one phone into the examiner. So I kept my other phone. And he would read out the list of there were like 10 topics and if it got to, he'd sort of read topic number one, two, three. When it got to topic number three, I just, <clears throat> I he said, I would cough into my microphone. So then he'd just start reading about topic number three and the, you know, the various huh. theories and equations. And it was quite mathematical. And he said, basically it worked like a dream. And he passed the paper. Wow. So, This is really scary. So basically, you know, every university uh, should be thinking about this. And, you know, and I mean, thinking about chat GPT as well, you know, writing papers. Well, (laughs) but even for live exams, you know, this is this guy could do it incredibly easily. And, you know, universities, they need to switch on. Very quickly.
0: Yep. Yeah.
1: So that that that's just kind of one reflection of of um the 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 whole Carlson Niemann thing. Um, I still you know go back to basics, which is that no clear evidence was produced by Magnus. Um, there was a lot of mud thrown around, and I think it's really unfortunate. Basically. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I feel the same way. And it seems like we'll, we'll never know more than that. Um, mm. um, and
1: probably not, I mean, I I think, I mean, who knows what's going on? What's what's the latest? Uh, you probably know better than me about the chances of success of this lawsuit.
0: Yeah, I don't feel like there have been that many updates. I think you mentioned you in your, you listened to my interview with David Franklin, I still sort of yeah. uh, think back uh, of that as sort of my tent pole. Uh, being his being a constitutional law professor. And uh, he and the other legal experts I heard didn't think highly of uh, Hans's chances of winning the lawsuit. So Mm -hmm. that's sort of all I have to go on. I've seen, you know, mild derision from the little amendments that uh, Hans has filed um, in in recent days. So um, I'm more curious, say the suit ultimately gets dismissed Hans continues to perform reasonably well. Like, will he ever be able to play chess.com events? You know, will he ever get invites to tournaments? Um, I think that's the those are the biggest unresolved questions to me. Although, I could, you know, maybe maybe he'll surprise and and make some money in the lawsuit. Although that still wouldn't really change those questions, I guess.
1: No, not really. I mean, you know, he's obviously. Um, Niman Hans Niemann obviously loves chess and wants to be part of that world um, whether he's got the temperament to succeed is actually another matter yeah I don't know
0: yeah I don't either but, uh, but again it'll be interesting I mean he hasn't played for a while and I don't know how much of that is due to lack of opportunity um, but I am I hope to see him playing more if nothing else um all right Yo. well daniel we got to discuss your chessable course um i was telling you um i got a sneak peek at it and i was excited as we discussed last time this is sort of in tandem with your kalashnikov course um you presented some anti sicilian weapons and i was excited to see what you have against the Rossolimo. but daniel i know you don't play as actively so what was it like for you first of all to sort of uh, dust off all these lines that you used to play what did you discover in uh in digging around
1: well actually i really enjoyed that um going back and you know researching these lines that i've been playing for decades you know i've played the sicilian let's say my entire serious chess career from when i was about 12 years old um I've I've never played e4 e5 with black never wow I've I mean I've played other stuff but basically when I was about 12 years old I was playing well in those days it was called the Lerventhal uh the Kalashnikov basically um and from there I went to the Sveshnikov and then from the Sveshnikov to the Nidorf and I've played the classical and the Khan and the, the dragon mm-hmm. and a few other things but basically Kalashnikov Sveshnikov Nidorf Those are my, the big three. Um, So, you know these anti Sicilian lines. I've, you know, always played with black, and, you know, I know a lot of people are kind of disappointed when they they get an anti Sicilian on the board, the Alapin or stuff. To me, for me, it's like you've won the psychological battle, because they're like they're too scared to actually go into your favorite open sicilian great you know we've 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 got them on the back foot already and i mean for example the rossolimo uh, i mean i've played this with white a great deal as well and and with black so uh, that feels i'm kind of swimming in that one and and really enjoy it you know enjoyed swing, swimming in the in the rossolimo the rossolimo i mean what i found was that checking up on a lot of this stuff um really you know obviously using serious computers these days that it's mainly just kind of refining things actually i mean i'm i'm glad to say that you know my experience of these lines um was still valid and the the recipes that that uh, i was using for for years they're 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 okay. I mean obviously they, they need tweaking and you know you discover interesting stuff. Um but actually they're fine. And you know for example against the Rossolimo 3 Knight F6 um which I always played with black because I uh, this whole line with G6 and then you know white casting and playing C3 and D4. I mean that was one of one of my main weapons as white. Mm-hmm. And I never felt comfortable playing with uh, as, as black, actually, which is why, you know, I played three night F six, which basically cuts across white's plans. Um, and I like this a lot, you know, that that's always worked very well for me, basically, and completely sound, you know, black gets out pieces. <laughs> it's good. Yeah
0: yeah i mentioned to you that i went straight to the move trainer and started learning that one as well because i've i've had the same experience i've played g6 various permutations against the main lines but for one thing i feel like it's gotten so it's gotten a bit concrete i mean the Mm -hmm. rosalimo i i used to feel at least at my level like when you're playing when someone plays it it might be a signal that they're less theoretical but now i don't feel that that's as true Um, When I interviewed world correspondence champion John Edwards, and I was quizzing him on the um, viability of various openings at the sort of elite engine level, Mm -hmm. and he was saying, uh, we were discussing the Shveshnikov in particular, Mm -hmm. but he was saying the most testing lines for white against the Shveshnikov, so this would be True of the Kalashnikov is the Rosalimo itself. So mm. I was I was glad to see the uh, the Knight F6 line, and I liked the positions that I checked out. But I'm curious, Daniel, why do you think it's so much less popular than uh, than G6?
1: Fashion. It really is. It's just fashion. You know, it's not like this is some new move, right?
0: Of course, it, yeah. It's
1: just that you know, if you look at the big guys, they're they're playing G6 and they're playing E6 those are the most popular moves and everyone kind of follows that um knight f6 is an absolutely normal move and indeed played by over the years by by the top players in the world and i think what's nice about it is that you do get positions which are more strategic actually and they don't have those concrete lines you're talking about because actually move order Actually, more for white than black, but move order is incredibly flexible. So, white very often has to exchange on c6. Um, but that can be done straight away, you know, next move and the move after that right. can be done in various positions. So, it's more about understanding the position type than actually following concrete lines. There are a few lines that are kind of concrete particularly where white plays h3 and g4 and tries to sideline that knight but actually i think they're very risky for white in practical terms you know because that knight hops back anyway right um so i think you know they can be rather good fun so i think it's it's just fashion it really is It's, it's nothing more everyone follows everyone else
0: yeah i believe it and, I tell you,
1: I tell you. Sorry, I was just sorry to to uh, continue on on the thought of you know what did you discover about you know looking at these these lines afresh. I tell you the move that really surprised me um, is in the against the Grand Prix attack. Now, the main way that one handles this is is pretty well known, um, but there's a certain moment where black can play knight h6 and this is against bishop b5 and you go knight d4. So th- this, this is pretty Think well known. The
0: three known. bishop b5 line?
1: Or? No, not the three bishop b5. No, just the Grand Prix attack with f4 and knight f3. Ah, okay. White plays bishop b5 and black plays knight d4. Now, theoretically, these lines were fine for black anyway. But with knight h6, this really puts so much pressure on white. And this I hadn't appreciated before. Because, as I said, this wasn't one of the sort of theoretically dangerous lines for for black. You know, it's always been thought to be okay. But there's a difference between okay and thinking, hang on, after knight h6, do you know what? White has got to be really careful here. White can get it wrong so easily and you just get blown off the board. Wow. It's very interesting. And that this knight h6 move crops up in... You know three or four of these key variations actually it's curious it's just about rapid development and very often that knight spins into the game uh, sometimes via g4 but sometimes via f5 as well it's really interesting and that's you know that's a bit of my research thinking okay what looks dangerous here and you know confirming with uh with the computer as well
0: you yeah. And what about uh? I feel similarly. I didn't check it out as much, but you you offer a French setup against the Alapin Sicilian. Um, That's another one where I feel like it theoretically it's it's fine, but uh, you don't see it as much at at least as far as I know. Um, So is that one that you've always played as well?
1: Yeah, yeah. I've so basically against e4 c5 c3 the Alapin. Um yeah e6 turned into my main weapon and i had real success with it because you often get these isolated queen's pawn positions and i love playing with an isolated queen's pawn because it gives you the chance to take the initiative
0: right
1: you've got black and you can get the initiative yes yeah <laughs> and and you do so from a sound basis that's why you know i like playing those positions um so it, But it's curious, when I look to the stats, I think 2e6 is played like 10% of the time with d5 and knight f6 being the main moves. And d5 and knight f6, of course, are completely respectable. But boy, there is a lot of theory to know and quite concrete theory. And I just don't feel it challenges white enough whereas with e6 i think white has to to um how can i put it i was going to say work hard to get an advantage that's that's i think white can easily fall into a position where they're having to cope with very active play by black because white does the kind of standard thing of blockading the pawn on d4 and then then Oh yeah, everything's fine. I've blockaded the pawn on d four. Actually, those are very difficult positions for White to handle.
0: Might have to check that one out too. I'm I'm less uh, I'm not suffering as much against the Alipin when I play uh, two knight f six, yeah. but but I'm tempted d- nonetheless.
1: I don't think it's not the most dangerous. Nevertheless, yeah. it's still a bit of a pain. Yeah, and e six in my experience. It always seemed to throw my opponents. Yeah, what? Well, uh, yeah, they 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 got reasonable positions, but they never played it really precisely because <laughs> it was just seen as kind of oh yeah that's that's okay for white.
0: Yeah, I played the Alipin as a kid. I haven't touched it in twenty five years, but that was my recollection of e six. You're you're almost just like the game starts on move three. You know. Yeah, and, exactly. And, and if you're white, and that's Your perspective that's not like a dream scenario
1: yeah Um, whereas actually to to try to get an advantage against it then real precision is needed i mean i still think it's absolutely fine for black anyway but um even to test black you have to play very precisely basically so mm -hmm. yeah i've actually i've had a lot of fun going going through these these lines um and you know people i've had really nice feedback already that um people have been trying this stuff and you know they say yeah you know it works works really well um you know i've been feeding a lot of these lines to my students over the years as well so you know it's like uh, i'm getting kind of vicarious pleasure out of seeing uh you know other people use these lines too basically
0: Excellent, and and have you gotten good feedback on your Kalashnikov course, which this of course now complements?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's been really good, actually. Really nice feedback. I mean, on my YouTube channel, um, you know, I I ask people, you know, if you've played a nice game, you know, send it in, and so I've been able to actually show, you know, a couple of nice wins by uh, people that have bought the course and, and played really nice games. And what's what's been nice, actually, is that I had this thing where in describing the strategy, I had little kind of buzz phrases, you know, like the breakout bishop, um, the poke, the Trojan horse. Hmm. Because with the Kalashnikov, you have quite a fixed pawn structure and pawn structure determines strategy then quite often strategy in the Kalashnikov is stays the same, you know, no matter what variation you're playing, you can still get a handle on the position if you have a few plans up your sleeve. So basically you know by remembering these phrases, even if people forget an exact line or they just want to go forward in the middle game, And these sort of phrases have really sort of helped people so that people, you know, that's been one of the big um, messages coming back to me that they like those kind of buzz phrases that I introduced. So that's been really nice.
0: Excellent. Yeah. I still, I still want to, as I mentioned to you last time, you mentioned you've played these various Sicilians. I've played a couple, but I still would like in a parallel life where I have all the time in the world yeah. i'd like to sprinkle in some kalashnikov to keep my uh bonus off guard
1: if you're a sveshnikov player then you know actually the it would be pretty natural for you yeah but yeah, sveshnikov that's that's a whole wonderful universe in itself
0: it is and yeah it's a lot of lot of maintenance a lot of upkeep but, but yeah, fun well that's physically. true
1: there is a lot yeah. of maintenance actually but yeah. good fun
0: yeah exactly yeah. um well, Daniel, this has been great. Before, before we let you go, I just, I always want to hear a couple stories from you. So um, number one, in thinking, bringing it back to the world championship, I'm curious, uh, what what was your first world championship that you attended?
1: Oh, attended. Oh, boy. Um, 1985 in Moscow.
0: Wow. What are your memories of it?
1: Fantastic memories, actually. So it was obviously Karpov and Kasparov, their their second match. So after the the aborted match in 84-85, So this was September eighty five, and I played in a, a tournament in Latvia, in Soviet Latvia at that time, in Jurmala, where Tal won. <laughs> awesome. So that was a that was an incredible experience. But you had to fly. You always had to fly to Moscow. So you you know you flew from London to Moscow, and then from Moscow to Latvia, and then back from Latvia to Moscow, and the, everything had to go through Moscow. It was all centralised. Um, so I flew back from Latvia to Moscow, and the World Championship match was taking place. It was September '85, and I was able to attend you know one of the games. So it was in the Tchaikovsky Concert Hall in Moscow, wonderful auditorium with you know these these you know, very steep banking of seats, and at the back of the stage, there's one table. This enormous stage, and they're playing at the back. I mean, it was a dramatic setting with those enormous boards where um, they they had these kids who were moving the pieces with these enormous hooks. Like yeah, I remember you, those. Yeah. yeah, like the you know, like you open a window, these big windows in a school. Right. Something. Um. So I mean it was an incredible atmosphere because you know when a, an interesting move was played there was this real buzz from the crowd uh you know that was just fantastic uh so you know I loved that, that as my first taste of a world championship match that was very exciting and then uh, for the next match the first half was held in London in 86 so that was great fun and I found myself you know commentating nice <laughs> so uh you know you felt like you were really in the thick of it so yeah those those are my first two memories basically were championship matches
0: amazing it's a different world and in what capacity were you there in 85 were you as a fan well, i was just
1: you... no 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 i mean i was i played in the tournament in latvia and i was just traveling through basically okay and i had a few days before my my flight back um to london I think I managed to rearrange my tickets so that it, so that I could visit the match, and um, you know I knew I knew people in Moscow. Um, it was Jonathan Tisdall, mm-hmm. was the Reuters correspondent, and um, David Goodman was, for, correspondent for I think for PA, um, or no, not PA, AP. <laughs> <laughs> um or the other way around i can't remember anyway they were both in moscow so i was able to to visit them and you know they, they were kind of my guides in in this very strange world uh which was pretty amazing and uh, yeah it's uh it's incredible to think you know of course i'm you know i'm still in touch. i'm not actually david's in america actually i haven't seen him for ages but um uh, John Tisdale, you know, I'm still in touch with, which is which is great, you know.
0: Yeah, and of course he he wrote about uh about those matches, um, and any interactions with Mikhail Tall in the tournament in Latvia.
1: Well, you know, yeah, we played, so yeah, no, absolutely. Um, just just had a fantastic game. It's the only time I played him. Um, yeah. I'm afraid I I came off worst.
0: It happens. (laughs)
1: Um, But it was a really close game. You know, I played E4. He played the Sicilian. We played an open Sicilian. And uh, I was doing quite well, actually. But good old time trouble. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, on the fourth, he... Of course, I got outplayed, in a sense, because... He just had that way of finding ways to keep tension in the game. So although from a, objectively I was better, it was never clear. It was always, he, he managed to set problems all the time until my flag was hanging, right. he pushed me into time pressure and on that last move of the time control I made a huge blunder and uh we adjourned and basically i had a lost end game. but yeah so basically he was just brilliant at setting problems
0: the deep dark forest yeah
1: exactly and he he basically i couldn't solve the problems in time and yeah essentially i got outplayed but you know he was really nice afterwards very just a very nice guy and uh you know, had a quick discussion of the game, and um, but he was he was very relaxed actually. He was there with his uh, wife and daughter, and you know, Jurmala is 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 near Riga. It's on the coast. There's there's a nice beach there. It's very relaxed, and you know, he was he looked very relaxed actually. You know, he was enjoying himself
0: excellent excellent perspective all right well Daniel that's fun to hear these stories um anything to add before we say our goodbyes
1: I one one more thing to mention I've just got a book coming out this one
0: oh excellent okay how to win at chess it's called for the uh audio listeners yeah. uh for what audience is it uh director so
1: this is really for beginners you know it's beautifully Illustrated beautifully designed um you know, it's full color. I don't know if Looks you can great. see that yeah. clearly. Um, there's historical stuff in there, really nice. Um, I was able to to put a bit of stuff about the history of the game and the culture of the game. Beautifully designed. Um, yeah. Stuff on the World Championship, that kind of stuff. So that's just come out. That's published by Pan Macmillan and is out all over all over the world basically so congratulations so so that's it's basically for for kids and Mm -hmm. yeah those 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 who are just starting up
0: yeah i mean in in theory it should be a good time to publish a book like that
1: so (laughs) in theory but there you go it's the it's the analog world rather than digital world so funny thing is i it's the second edition of of the book the first edition came out in 2000. So this is only 23 years later. Oh, wow. The, the publisher thought, hey, that chess thing. Yeah, uh, that hasn't a... gone away. In fact, a lot of people are talking about chess. So they wanted yeah. a second edition. The first edition went to 27 languages. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, I'm not sure this one is going to do so well. But I'm intrigued because, you know, it, it's like a little... It, I, I'm just intrigued to know what's happening in the the traditional publishing world
0: yeah um it'll be interesting i mean there's there's still it plenty <laughs> of, it might yeah but there's still plenty of i mean first of all obviously my listeners I, are many of them there's still many book fans um but also there's still plenty of non-chess people who when when they want to learn about something they pick up a book so um, yeah but
1: it's the kind of thing you know if you've got uh i don't know you got a niece or a nephew who's yeah you know like 10 years old and and is just getting into the game it's the perfect present basically
0: excellent well you'll have to daniel excellent. hopefully we can we can speak again someday get some more stories and uh you can report back on uh on how the sales are doing
1: <laughs> yeah well <laughs> this dinosaur will will come back and report again basically
0: <laughs> excellent yeah. And Daniel, we haven't talked chess improvement yet in this interview, and I know you'd mentioned that you have a few new insights that have occurred to you. So I'm I'm excited to hear those, being that I'm of course writing about this and always interested in it as
1: well. Well, I don't know. Recently, I've just been comparing um, chess improvement and chess coaching with learning a musical instrument as you can see you uh, i know people are listening to this but in the background if you're on if you're looking at the video you can see i've got a couple of guitars or a guitar and a bass so you know i i don't know if you know but you know i've played music oh we discussed
0: my... your illustrious rock career in in a prior interview so oh,
1: yeah well okay <laughs> I, so I've, I've you know th- there's music in the family and you know i've played music my whole life and you know i'm really um just love it just love it um and you know there are so many things that that chess and music have in common. I mean, I'm not just talking about learning, but the whole structure of games and the structure of pieces of music and harmony and you know all these kinds of things. But it just struck me recently, a, a couple of my students, so they just play online. And again, this this is a new world. Again, I you know I feel like this dinosaur. <laughs> Where you know I, I have students who just play online, and this is just a completely different technique, basically. Um, and they present me with their games that they've played this week, and they're all blitz games because <laughs> that's what you do online, you know. No one plays 40 in two hours <laughs> online,
2: right?
1: <laughs> you know, this is this is crazy, and actually. I can't get a sense of where they're at because there'll be a pawn that's blundered, there'll be a piece that's blundered, there'll be a mate that's overlooked. And, you know, I'm trying to analyse this game, trying to sort of find patterns, but those patterns are completely disturbed when there are these outright blunders taking place and the game just kind of careers on. And it just maybe think back to my piano lessons when i was like six years old well you know i cannot imagine if you know my piano teacher had presented me with a a piece of music and said okay you know do your best try and practice that and then the next week you know i would play this piece of music and go you know, 99 miles an hour. Well, okay, so the next week, is <laughs> so, okay, have another go. And I played it again at 99 miles an hour. Okay. And you make all the same mistakes. Right. So, you know, the way we learn a piece of music, so we have a the first phrase, <laughs> da-da-da-da-ba-ba-bom. Okay, let's practice that one again. So, those are the first few bars, and so on. You break it down. Now, how can you play a good game of chess if you're playing blitz the whole time? It's impossible. So, you know, my main thing that I say to my students at the end of each session is hey, how about we play a half hour game? I'd really be interested to see. How you get on when you play, you have half an hour for all your moves. Maybe even longer. And then I can really see where you're at. Yeah. It's incredible. I find so this is just the standard thing that everyone plays at 99 miles an hour.
2: Yeah.
0: Now I I generally agree with you, but I do feel like at a certain level, Blitz. Can help your game a lot, um, especially can help your openings. Um, are, are you thinking of like a certain level student, or do you think everyone, like uh, even say over two thousand, should be playing? No,
1: I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm not saying for all levels. Um, I, I agree with you. If you want to practice some openings, for example, and just to get a feel for your, let's say, your match fitness. It's nothing wrong with Blitz, you yeah. know. I'm not. I'm not going to go all Botvinnikian on you, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, wag my finger. Um, But I think for at a certain level, you know, these are guys that rarely play over the board chess, and one is even, you know, they haven't played since they were at school or something like that, and I think it, for me, it's kind of essential. They just, to to make real progress, you've got to start slow. Yeah. It really is so important and to get the fundamentals right. And when I'm talking about the fundamentals, I'm talking about getting your pieces out, control the center and get castled. You know, this, again, this is, you know, if you're talking about one huge error, that I see so many people make, even up to quite a high standard. You know, I'm talking even up to kind of 2000, I would say. It's that players are grabbing material. They forget the basics. They forget to concentrate on getting your king to safety as quickly as possible because they get distracted by a pawn or some adventure with a queen or. Right. Or they move a piece twice. There's no kind of egalitarianism in their army. There's no democracy. You know, they forget you've got to use all your pieces. You know, these are absolute fundamentals that players forget all the time, up to quite a high level. And especially when they're playing blitz at 99 miles an hour. And it is so similar to learning a musical instrument.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. I, I've I've studied music here and there, but not to the extent that you have, but I, I remember going too fast when I was taking lessons. Uh, so, yeah.
1: Listen, and, I I've had very few lessons. That was <laughs> when I, that was when I was really, you know, six years old. Right. Um, and oh, okay. I had violin lessons for about four years. Um, but yeah, I, formal stuff <laughs>
0: you so you learned on your own
1: um to some extent you know like I said there's music in the family so it, there's, there's kind of musical you know quite decent decent musicians who who could give advice if not uh formal lessons let's put it mm-hmm. like that yeah
0: and are you still doing your gigs
1: yeah unfortunately the pandemic just kind yeah. of cut into things but yeah i'm i'm playing gigs now and again not not so much sadly but um just recently i've my double bass. i've got this beautiful double bass i love my double bass that's that's downstairs that's my favorite instrument um and recently i started practicing with a little sort of um Tango band, actually playing Latin music and stuff, which is really really good fun, and um, we haven't played a gig yet, but it's just kind of rehearsal band really, and um really really enjoying getting back into playing, so it's all we're still we're still emerging post pandemic actually, yeah,
0: yeah, it's been a process for sure, yeah, um. All right. Well, Daniel, any other chess improvement nuggets before we uh, say our goodbyes?
1: No, I think I've said my my thing. Slow down, everyone. Slow <laughs> down. This Excellent. this dinosaur can't move too fast. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent.
0: Um. Okay. Well, listeners, before be sure to tune in to Daniel's Power Play Chess to, for coverage of the World Championship and, of course, all the other top chess events, and uh, check out his chessable course courses, I should say, as well. But of course, most the most topical being is anti Sicilian course. And Daniel, always fun to talk chess with you. Thanks for joining us again.
1: It's pleasure. Nice to chat.
0: And we are here with someone I've long been meaning to get on the pod. He is a statistician, a frequent collaborator with chess.com. He gives uh, great analytic reports on big events such as candidates or, say, for example, the World Championship. He is a USCF master and the co-founder of chessgoals.com, which provides study plans for improvers. And, of course, we're going to mostly discuss the World Championship, but since we finally have him here, we're also going to talk some chess books, chess study plans, and chess ratings. Uh, Chess Goals also has... Written um, one of the definitive guides to sort of comparing chess ratings across sites, which is a welcome service. So we'll get into all that stuff as well. But first, let's welcome National Master Matt Jensen to the pod. Welcome, Matt.
2: Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. That was a great introduction. Uh, Thanks. I think- yeah,
0: excited to have you. Even if I'm not a hundred percent excited for the World Championship <laughs> match. And Matt, I got to take your temperature too, because as sort of someone who tries to have their finger on the pulse of the chess community, it's something I've been very curious about. Because as I've sort of been ramping up to cover this event, I felt this mild malaise. And as Daniel King and I discussed, and listeners will have heard, there's the geopolitical backdrop, which certainly contributes to it, but also the distinct lack of Magnus, the distinct lack of the best player. So I'm curious, Matt, before we dig into the analytics, just as a chess fan, uh, how are you feeling about this match? Are you fired up or meh?
2: Uh, Feeling kind of meh. I have to be honest, until the moment that you emailed me to say, hey, would you like to come talk about some stats in the world championship? I hadn't really thought too much about it, <laughs> so it yeah. does feel like a battle for number two at this point
0: yeah i it's it's just an unfortunate truth, and I don't mean to be a downer, and I know there are some listeners who are excited for it, so we'll we'll leave it there in terms of like uh pontificating about how we feel about it, so let's dig into the numbers, Matt. I appreciate that you did do the work once you got that email from me, so we have two of the closest rating competitors uh, that I can recall. I mean, they're they're two and three on the live ratings list, less than 10 rating points apart. Uh, Are there any other matches that come to mind for you that were as close in terms of the the size of the gap between the competitors?
2: I could only find one match that was closer, and that was the Carlson-Caruana 2018 match. Because at the time, if you remember, Carlson's rating had dipped down a little bit. Caruana was close to his peak. Um, So there was only a three-point difference. They were 28-35 and 28-32. The only other match that was somewhat close was Anand Kramnik in 2008. Uh, That was an 11-point difference. So I think this is the second closest match of all time.
0: Right. That's funny. And when I started to brainstorm about it, I did think of uh, Carlson-Caruana because it was such recent history. But it's somewhat counterintuitive that they were that close. Because obviously when we look historically, we think of Carlson as the stronger player. Um, but it was at that exact moment where it looked like, uh, Carlson was going to be passed in, uh, in live rating, or at least he was in danger of it. So at that moment, it was very close. And I'm sure from a modeling perspective, Matt, that made it interesting because you have, okay, if you use their current ratings, it tells one story, but if you use some sort of mean or peak rating, it's going to tell a different story.
2: Yeah. And the interesting thing with that match is even though their classical ratings were so close, I think Carlson had such a big advantage in the rapid tie break and especially in the blitz tie break that they kind of skewed the overall odds towards Carlson. And then that's exactly how it played out in the match. They were very even in the classical portion and then Carlson just blew them off the board when they got to rapid.
0: Yeah. And we'll get to any potential rapid, uh, um, ramifications in this current match. Um, so Matt, I know you've modeled, other world championships, you've modeled candidate cycles, you've done some work on speed chess championships and stuff like that. Um, and I'm curious, what are the inputs to your model? Um, is it simply ELO? Is it average ELO? Uh, what, what goes into your, what, what have you found to be the best way to try to assess what's going to happen in a chess match?
2: So for um, the world championships specifically, what I've done is I've gone back to all the world championship matches back to 1985. So that was a Kasparov-Karpov match. Um, And I log the ages of each player, the experience level. So how many matches have they been in for a world championship? I look at the current ratings. um, And then I kind of have some combinations of these variables, like difference in ratings, averages, so on. And then what I like to do is uh, throw those results into a few models. I use R and I try to figure out which of the variables are the most predictive, uh, both individually and in combination. But really it's hard to be, current elo um when it comes to predicting these matches it just does such a good job yeah that's
0: interesting and i think that gets to why magnus didn't defend his throne i mean the the rating system for all of our complaints at the club levels you know that we may feel like with amateurs and with kids rising quickly it's not as accurate as it used to be but at the elite level where these people are playing all the time guess what ratings are very accurate so uh that that made magnus i think disinclined he knows he's the best player um to defend. And of course, I'm guessing, Matt, that it makes this one a very close matchup, according to your model.
2: Yeah, so I did kind of the same thing I did for the last world championship um, in my chess.com article. I created a simulation for each game, and I ran it 1,000 times. So essentially simulating 1,000 world championship matches. And the expected points per game that I had going into the model was 0.505 for Nepomniachtchi and 0.495 for Ding Liren. so really about as close as it gets. Um, And then the player who's the favorite over the course of a 14-game match has a little bit higher odds than in any individual game. So I'm coming up with about 53% for Nepo and 47% for Ding Liren in terms of winning the whole match, including tie breaks.
0: That's interesting. And I sort of feel like I'm hearing more people predict Nepo to win than otherwise. Although, of course, us being humans and not calculators or uh, spreadsheets, we we do factor in. We can't help but factor in stuff like experience and form and, uh, you know, maybe institutional support, government support, corporate support, and all of those things also, as it happens, lean in Nepo's direction. But it's interesting that from a rating mo- model perspective as well, it's um, quite close. Now, Matt, I generally on these preview pods uh, provide betting market info as well. I'm a big um, believer in the power of markets. Uh, you know, when people are able to um, have skin in the game to uh, make a wager based on what they think, that's a strong incentive to try to um, get the, uh, you know, um, get the correct information. That's uh that's why they have all these beautiful casinos in Las Vegas. Um, but I haven't been able to find much for this one. Did you happen to see any betting lines that were credible? I don't know if this is your forte, but I'm just curious.
2: I don't do a lot of betting, but I do like to look at betting lines. I did some googling. I found a couple sites, and it seems like the sites are tending to give fifty to sixty percent chance for Yon to win. Um, I saw a one point six five to one for Nepo, and a minus one twenty five line for Nepo. So I think it's right in that range of like fifty to sixty percent chance uh, for Nepo to win.
0: Okay, Uh, yeah. So that's good to know, and not not a huge surprise. And you never know with these markets, like. It's not like uh, betting on the Super Bowl or something where you have billions of dollars being wagered and you know that the price is sort of the balance. Um, they, They might not let you bet more than a couple hundred bucks on some of these sites. But there does seem to be consensus that Nepo would be a small favorite no matter how you slice it now. One thing I'm curious about, Matt, you've provided good insights in the past. How likely is a rapid tiebreak in different matches? What's the case with this one? Um, Do do your numbers tell you how likely we are to end up with more drama at the end?
2: Yeah, I think it's about a 20% chance of a tiebreak from what I can tell. I think each individual game, the chance of a draw is around 70%. So we're going to be looking at a pretty high draw rate. um, And the players are close in rating. So across the simulations, I think it's about 20% chance. And then one thing I was trying to figure out is who's the favorite in Rapid and who's the favorite in Blitz? And if you look at current Rapid ratings, Dingleren is actually quite a bit higher rated than Nepo. Um, and if you look at the current Blitz ratings, uh, Dingler has uh, I next to his rating, which I think just means he has like, a provisional rating. He hasn't played enough games. Interesting. Um, so it, it might be... Nepal the favorite in Blitz, just because we know he's a Blitz beast online. Um, He has an established FIDE Blitz rating. And Dinglerin may be the slight favorite in Rapid from what I can gather.
0: Wow, that's interesting. Um, And how much much, uh, credit do you give to those ratings? Because they are drawing from smaller samples, especially with Blitz. Like the classical ratings, I feel like they're very firmly established. Um, But do you feel like those ratings are, are worth, do you feel like they have value on their own?
2: I think it's the best we have. Um, You're right. There's not a huge sample size. Uh, So what I tend to do in these models is I take those ratings and I kind of cut the difference in in half approximately uh, because that does seem to hold true for classical games in world championships. Whatever the rating difference is, you can almost cut it in half in terms of expected points. For whatever reason, the players play at a closer level than their ratings would dictate. Um, So I think it's probably going to be true in Rapid and Blitz as well. They're just going to be a little bit closer than what their ratings say. Okay. And to verify, the format
0: is, so obviously we have 14 classical games, um, and then it goes to four Rapid games, and then it would go to Blitz after that. Is that right?
2: Uh, Yeah, four Rapid game playoff, 25 plus 10 time control. Um, And then there's a two-game Blitz uh, tiebreaker if that's still tied, and then another two-game Blitz tiebreaker if that's tied followed by, in the end, an Armageddon game. Oh, my God. That would so be amazing. That, I might take experience.
0: back all the bad things I've thought about this world championship if we get an Armageddon game at the end. Yeah. Um, <laughs> although, again, uh, the, the, the true died in the wool classical fans are probably uh, shaking their fists at the, <laughs> at the screen or the podcast uh, as they hear me say that because it is not uh, in the tradition of the, um, the long, drawn-out classical matches.
2: Um, do you have a preference in terms of your favorite format for a match? Do you like the matches that just keep adding more classical games?
0: Yeah, I mean, I like looking back on those matches, but I think it's unrealistic. I think 14 games is a good amount. Um, anything less, and you're you're introducing extra variants, um, something that that Magnus has certainly voiced in the past. Anything more... Um, and it's just getting unrealistic in terms of the time demands, the venue demands. I think even from a fan perspective, uh, you might start to lose people. So to me, 14 people is is about right. Obviously, Matt, uh, the general format of the World Championship is a frequent topic of discussion here on Perpetual Chess. And I'm, I'm ambivalent. I'm open to the idea of changing the format. Uh, but You know, I just interviewed international master Willie Hendricks, who, of course, is a chess historian. So he voiced some sadness about sort of the demise of the classical format. And I I understand that being a common feeling. But I guess I would say that my my final line on it is it really should be the top players deciding, you know, uh, the FIDE or chess.com or whoever it is that is organizing the match really needs to have a format where the best players want to play. Um, And there's at least one prominent best player who doesn't want to play. And I know a lot of people say good riddance, um, but that's not really like I'm more sympathetic to uh, to Magnus. A sport is only as good as its stars. And he obviously is one of its biggest stars. Uh, What
2: do you think? Where do you come down on this? I think that's a good point. I think they should really weigh heavily on what the top players want to do, especially when you have a dominant champion like Magnus. If you can make some small tweaks and please Magnus, it might be worth doing. Um, I think the current setup, though, is actually fairly good. It sort of has the the old school classical match, like you said, 14 games. That's plenty of games to kind of reduce the variance. Um, but then it also brings in kind of this newer school of rapid play and blitz play that people like to watch online approximately 20% of the time if we have a tied match. So I think it's a pretty good balance.
0: Yeah. And, and again, as I discussed with, Dan, with Daniel King, when you do tune out the noise, tune out the, the extremely um, aggravating geopolitical background, um, it's a compelling matchup. It'll be fun to see. Stylistically, I find it interesting. I, I'd like to see what openings are going to be played. So um, any predictions in that regard, Matt, before we move on beyond the World Championship?
2: It's really hard to say. I feel like they always uh, throw us off. Whatever opening we think they're going to play, it's something completely different. So maybe we'll see... like a Sveshnikov from Ding Liren or something. That
0: would be fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be that would be interesting. All right. Well, Matt, before we move on, anything else to add on the world championship? Again, because it's such a close matchup, and because rating is the best predictor, there, there's really, from an analytical perspective, I love getting experts like yourself getting your perspective. But there's only so much that can be said, in my opinion. But is there anything else to add?
2: Um, okay, I'll add one more portion about uh, getting hyped up for the match. This was something that I really wanted to find some data to to make us excited about this match. I think because the ratings are a little bit lower than a Carlson match, we're going to have less draws. So in the Carlson matches, we've been averaging like 76% of the games are draws. It's really high. Um, And also because the players are so close in rating, I think the match should be close. So if we get a close match without as many draws, maybe we'll see a couple decisive games going back and forth and actually have one of the more exciting matches that we've seen in recent times uh, with Magnus on the sidelines.
0: That would be fun to see. And again, this is something I touched on with Daniel King. But the one thing we haven't seen so much of is Nepo bounce back. So I want to see Ding put a W on the board early, and then I want to see Nepo bounce back. And then let's just have chaos from there. Um, let's do whatever we can to, uh, to make this a historical world championship. But we were just mentioning ratings, Matt. And since I have you here, I do want to talk a little about um, rating differences across sites. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about rating deflation over the board. Uh, so first, let's dig into a Patreon mailbag question. Um, this one is from Bob Weisenberg. Thank you for helping support Perpetual Chess, Bob. And he asks if you've seen any evidence of ratings deflation on chess.com and Lee Chess, meaning a player of a given skill level would have a lower rating today than a year ago. He says it seems to him that there are more and more strong players further down the ratings ladder than there were a year or two years ago. Um, so he's curious if you've seen that in the data that you collect over at Chess Goals, Matt.
2: Yeah. So I went back to 2020 to try to dig up this data. Um, The first thing I'll note though is I think it's really hard to define inflation and deflation. You know, if you think of like monetary inflation, oftentimes you need sort of like a basket of goods or something where you can figure out what is that money good for. Um, In terms of chess rating, we can compare different rating systems like USCF to chess.com to Lee Chess, and that's what I usually do. But it would be nice to peg ratings to some sort of level of skill, like average cent upon loss, or maybe a more sophisticated metric. Um, but let's just talk about the ratings across different sites. So back in July of 2020, a 1,200 player on chess.com uh, blitz would be about 1,275 USCF. And now that 1,200 in blitz is 1,245 USCF. So we've only seen a 30-point change. Um, a Lee chess player, on the other hand, at 1,450 Lee chess blitz, is now about 1560 lead Chess splits if we peg it to the Chess.com and USCF equivalent. So I think there is maybe a little bit of inflation on Lee Chess, about 100 points over the last three years or two and a half years. Um, chess.com and USCF seem pretty similar. And FIDE, I think, falls in line with, with that as well.
0: Okay, and that's inflation, you said. Uh, inflation. Not, okay, interest, but that's yeah. over a three-year span. I think Bob is referring to more recent history. And and as you say, that makes it tough to parse. I mean, at some point, it's, it's tough to get enough data quick enough. And the other thing is, of course, these things are moving targets. Like if you're comparing something to USCF, um, as has come up in my interview with Dr. Mark Glickman, and like you heard, listeners may have heard my interview with I am Dean Um Anyone who's very active in tournaments will hear about certain geographic regions where they feel like uh, you know a, a fifteen hundred is just way stronger than they used to be. Uh, a two thousand, same story et cetera. And I know the United States is, is one of those places. That's certainly how I feel as well. So anyway, I mean, that just makes it all the more hard for someone like you to model, because if you're comparing it and it itself is changing, um, then it's, uh, it's tough to track, but, but I will say to Bob's question, I've certainly seen other people on Twitter and in other chess circles say the same thing, like, Hey, I used to be 2300 on Lee chess and now I'm 2200 and I'm playing the same. Um, I've certainly heard some data in that regard. But, uh, but yeah, unfortunately, as with many things chess, uh, despite Matt's best efforts, we don't have as much data as we would like.
2: Yeah, sorry to not give a better answer to that, Bob. But I think um, if you have a group of players that you know, and you know their consistent ratings, it might be good to look them up and see how their ratings are changing. Because um, it's really hard to figure out a large pool of players. Are they moving up or down? And are they expected to be stable or are they improving or decreasing in terms of strength?
0: Right. Yeah. And of course, we will link to the uh, chess goals data that, that you guys provide uh, so that anyone interested can check it out themselves. And Matt, have you had any experience with the sort of more general topic of inflation and deflation, especially over the board?
2: Um, well, I feel like when I started playing USCF, a 1000 rated player was much weaker than today's 1,000 rated players. I've gone through some of my old score sheets and we would probably be rated 500 today. Uh, Yeah, A 1,000 from 1992, for example. I've done a little bit of work for Chess.com, helping them battle inflation and deflation. So Chess.com will bring me in just for some kind of general contracting work. And one of the things we've looked at in the past was how can we keep Chess.com ratings somewhat close to USCF ratings? just because we have a lot more data for USCF than FIDE at lower ratings. Um, so I know Chess.com has done some work in that. Um, and I know USCF has added like a bonus rating points for players that are improving really quickly because they had deflation for a while. So, so I think these uh, websites and organizations do keep some tabs on, you know, is a 1400 truly a 1400 over time?
0: Okay. Yeah, that's helpful. And and Chess.com does do a good job having the rating track reasonably close, in my opinion. I know Lee Chess has a different philosophy where they want the average rating to be 1,500, and that's their priority rather than tracking to another system. Um, And of course, Chess.com and Lee Chess both use the Glicko rating system. Uh, Again, refer listeners to my interview with Dr. Mark Glickman. It's a system that that he invented, not surprisingly, since it's called Glicko. And basically, it's a lot more receptive to recent data than Uh, than the historical ELO system. Um, And I say the sooner that uh, USCF and FIDE switch to Glicko, the better. I don't know if you have an opinion on that, uh, Matt.
2: I think it would be helpful. Um, What hurts USCF and FIDE is they just don't have as many games played. So people now are playing thousands of games online in the time frame that maybe they only play 20 games over the board. It's really hard to keep those ratings accurate, I think.
0: Yeah. Um, Okay. well, I appreciate the insights on rating. You know, it's a developing story, as we say, Uh, comes up frequently. Many uh, improvers lamenting sort of uh, the changing landscape, but uh, we all have to play under the same set of rules. So at the end of the day, um, it's a relatively level playing field. Now, let's talk a little chess improvement while we have you here. Matt, because you do put together these nice study plans for chess goals, recommending different uh, goals, uh, different sort of uh, curriculums for different rating ranges. But first, Matt, what's your top line advice? Someone's really getting bit by the chess bug. They come to chess goals. How do you tell them to spend their chess improvement time?
2: So there's this group of players that I call speed runners. And what they do is they play chess. They play games about 90% of the time. And then about 5% of the time, they analyze their games. And then the other 5% is just various other chess resources. I think if you wanted to keep it as simple as possible, that's what I would recommend. Wow. Play a a ton of games, and then every game, go back and analyze it and just think of one or two takeaways.
0: Okay, that's interesting. You're not going to get a lot of... uh, Objectors to that advice because everyone loves playing. You know, usually it's like people are like, "You've got to do the deliberate practice. You've <laughs> got to solve the blindfold endgame studies." You know, if you're not crying, you're not working. So if you say, "Hey, yeah. just just play some games," they're
2: like, "Okay." But but you know what's funny about that Ben is a lot of students that I've worked with it, through chess goals do have the opposite problem. You know, I think people who research chess improvement on the internet tend to have a certain mindset for getting better at chess, and that is. Give me a huge stack of books. Right. And I'm going to study my way through my issues and improve that way. And I'll find that they barely play any games at all. Um, So I think having that balance play at least 50% of the time is advice that I give players across the board. As you get stronger, I think it makes more sense to use books and other resources more. But as a beginning player, you want to really play a lot of games.
0: Yeah, I agree. And obviously, I've mentioned many times, going to plug my book that's not out yet relentlessly, but it's been top of mind for me because I've been writing about this. And the one thing I would add and sort of echo uh, my friend, Friday Master Nate Solon is, to me, it helps if the games feel like they matter to you. You know, if you're, if you're playing bullet chess, you know, in your bed or on the toilet, like uh, forgetting about it, um, you know, that might have a place that might help escape, help you escape from whatever's bothering you in your relationships or your professional life or whatever it may be, but don't expect it to help your chess. Whereas if you're super focused, you know, not, you know, phone in the other room, um, playing obviously a tournament game or uh, able to take an online game seriously. I think that's where the uh, even blitz, as long as it's something that really matters to you, I think that that does make a difference um, in terms of uh, helping you learn.
2: I think that's a really good point. Yeah. You want to make it so that every game matters. Yeah. Um,
0: okay. And we have a related question from your fellow Minnesotan, who I believe you know, Peter Newhall. Uh, okay. Shout out to Peter and thanks for supporting the pod, Peter, as always. And he asks, he says, and I, he, he asks, he says, having offered quite a few different study plans for a few years now and gotten feedback from many people on them, has your thinking regarding study plans changed? Do you use one regularly or sort of fall in and out of one depending on what's going on with the rest of your life? And then, as an aside, Peter says, sorry, I have absolutely zero questions about the World Championship. It feels more like an exhibition match to me. And while I'm rooting for Ding, it feels kind of meaningless.
2: We understand, Peter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So the first question, um, just to give a little bit of background on how I got these study plans. um, I ran a survey a few years back, and we had over 400 chess players. And they gave survey data in terms of how many hours they spend on blitz, rapid, classical, end games, so on, just like every aspect of studying. And I use that to build some statistical models. And one of the things that came out um, in the results was that playing blitz is very valuable. And I've gotten a ton of heat for this recommendation, Get, mm-hmm. you know, recommending that people play a lot of games and play a lot of blitz, but it's very strong in the data.
0: Wow. Like, and did you check this across the rating spectrum? Yeah, Uh-oh. it's at all I, levels, <laughs> and I might need to rewrite part of my book. <laughs>
2: uh, that's well, interesting. Um, some of these players, though, are looking to improve in Blitz, so yeah. that's kind of the qualifier. And it is uh, survey data, so these uh, people chose to take the survey. Okay, so um,
0: yeah, maybe I can uh, walk on that thin read and say that that's the reason <laughs> why. But that's interesting because what what my the the advice that I give and. Uh, my perspective has been, I've long come around that Blitz is good for your game at a certain level. I think it's basically unequivocal. Um, if you look at like the Hikarus and the Magnuses of the world, uh, not to mention even mortals who improve at chess. Um, but I just have felt historically like people say rated below 1400, maybe might be developing bad habits by trying to do things too quickly. Um, but but I'm not generally a guy who likes to argue with data.
2: Well, I think we're, we're kind of merging in the middle then, Ben, because... I've backed off a little bit on the blitz recommendations with the qualifier. If you're someone that gets really frustrated playing blitz, you find it's way too fast. You're just making horrible blunders every game. I think you should find a time control that kind of pushes you as fast as you can play where you're still getting quality games and some good takeaways from each game. And then as you improve and play more blitz, or maybe it's rapid you begin with, you can start to slowly go faster and faster. You know, so for me, I play quite a bit of three plus zero blitz, but if I have an 800 rated player starting a chess goal study plan, I don't recommend them play three plus zero. That's way too fast. Maybe they start with 10 plus five um, and try to get some good takeaways there and then slowly play faster as they improve.
0: Okay. I, I can definitely get on board with that. And last topic, Matt, I mean, I know that you have specific book recommendations within your curriculum. Um, so I'm curious whether you have favorite chess books, even favorite chess YouTubers, wh- whatever it is that you find recommending the most um, to, to, for people to help their games uh, beyond when they're not actually playing chess, as of course is your strongest recommendation.
2: I think uh, the number one book that I like to recommend is actually a series of books. It's the Yusupov series. I think if you don't have a coach and you want something where you can just self-study, work on your own, that's an outstanding series. And there's 10 different books. They're kind of organized by rating level. Um, That's probably the best way to go for just an all-encompassing book. The other books I like to recommend is I really enjoy Reassess Your Chess. I still think about positions in terms of imbalances to this day. Um, and that's how I like to explain positions to students as well. And then Solman's Endgame Course, I think, is a great yeah. book. Just you can have it for life. Uh, beginner all the way up to master or higher.
0: Yeah, I'm slightly more ambivalent on Reassess Your Chess, but I'm a huge fan of uh, Soman's Endgame Course. And the Yusupov courses, I have to admit, um, Matt, they're, they're a glaring hole in my uh, my. Uh, chess canon in terms of books that I've read, actually the aforementioned Peter Newhall. Peter's re- waiting to do a podcast about them with me because he's done them and he's okay. just waiting for me to get it together to <laughs> to do my part. But one question I do have is my understanding of the Yusupov series is it probably, it starts at a decently high level. Like, is that applicable advice for everyone or do you need to be a certain level to start with uh, with the 10 book Yusupov series?
2: The lowest, uh, the first book in the series I think if you're rated about one thousand, you're probably ready for it.
0: Oh, really? Okay.
2: There are. Some I've heard their rating that,
0: guidelines. Like a lot of chess book reading guidelines are off, but
2: yeah, the, the, I've heard rating guidelines all over the place for those <laughs> books. What you'll find is some of the chapters are pretty easy, mm-hmm. and the other chapters will be extremely difficult. Okay. Um, so I think as long as you have sort of a patient approach, you could skip over a chapter if it's just too difficult. I think a one thousand, uh, you're probably ready to try them.
0: Okay. Um, excellent. All right. Well, Matt, I've really enjoyed getting your perspective. Uh, since this is a double episode, I'm thinking we'll keep it on the uh, the shorter side. But um, thank you for getting me slightly more excited for the world championship for the ratings wisdom. We might have to talk about that again sometime. I especially appreciate that you did some, uh, you know, independent research in sort of preparing for this pod. And of course, always good to get your chess improvement advice. So of course, listeners can check out chess goals. Uh, anything else to, to say or plug before we say our goodbyes, Matt?
2: Uh, Yeah, mainly chessgoals.com. We have free study plans, some courses. And the big thing that I try to do on that site is uh, make chess studying easy. So just keep you focused and directed on what you want to study. And thanks for having me on, Ben. This was awesome. We'll have to do a a live stream of this whole world championship coming up. Oh, yeah. Sounds good to me. Yeah. (laughs)
0: <laughs> like it or not, we're going to be watching. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and let me ask you, Matt, there there was um, one other question I, that just occurred to me. Since I have enjoyed your chess.com write-ups, do you know if you'll be doing one uh, this time around?
2: For the world championship? Yeah. Yep. Um, so I'm actually preparing that right now. I'll be doing a full prediction article. So the stuff we've talked about today is kind of a sneak peek for what's going to be in the article. Excellent.
0: Yeah, and this this interview will be out March 28th, and we're recording on March 21st. So who knows? You may have already read Matt's article by the time you uh, hear this. But anyway, Matt, it's been a lot of fun. And yeah, it's doing doing a world championship stream, although I think it might be at like 3 a.m., but whatever. I'm in. Let's
2: just do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll keep in touch. <laughs> All right.
0: Sounds good. Th- thanks for joining us, Matt.
2: Thank you, Ben.